This is an ABC podcast. In the mid-1950s, a man called Francis Watlington was working for the US Navy. His job was to put sensitive underwater listening devices or hydrophones deep down in the ocean to spy on enemy submarines and boats. David George Haskell is a biologist and author. He tells the story of Watlington in his book, Sounds Wild and Broken. Watlington, in the process of his recording, heard these strange sounds and he realised that the sounds coincided with the passage of humpback whales past the, the microphones that he was on. And he heard this beautiful, mournful, ghostly sound in his recordings and he could hear the sound echoing from the deep canyons in the ocean. So it's not just the animals that he was hearing. He was hearing the reflections of the ocean and the ocean bed as well. So it's a, almost like being in a very complex concert hall, hearing the reverberations and echoes. Watlington saved the recordings and decades later shared them with American biologists Roger and Katie Payne. They were studying humpback whales and making their own recordings. Together with the pains, they decoded these and realised these are not just random grunts and squeals. These were songs. And if you look at hours and hours of humpback whale songs, you see that there are repeats and structures and loops happening on the scale sometimes of minutes, but then on hours as well. It's a very sophisticated form of, of vocal communication that they called songs. And this then, because this came at a time mid 20th century where people were sharing things through tapes and LPs and on the radio, this sound could then be shared worldwide. And National Geographic sent it out in, in their magazine and really opened people's imaginations to the underwater sounds of the oceans. These recordings and the hugely successful album of whale songs had a profound impact and helped to start a worldwide movement to end commercial whaling. And what's extra special about this story, Francis Watlington was a descendant of European whalers. Hello, this is Future Tense. I'm Jennifer Leake. Since those whale calls were first captured in the 1950s, our oceans have become a lot noisier. Huge cargo ships, echo sounders, sonar and seismic air guns, as well as all sorts of construction are creating noise pollution, which can be high intensity and acute, as well as low level and chronic. Orcas or killer whales, as they're sometimes known, if they're within a few hundred metres of a great big container ship, their ability to echolocate, so send sound waves off and then receive the returning sound wave, which is how they find their food, their ability to echolocate is reduced by 95%. So effectively, we've blinded them. This invisible pollution is drowning out the healthy ocean soundscape all marine life rely on, from the largest marine animals to the smallest fish and plankton. I'm Richard Sabin and I'm Principal Curator at the Natural History Museum in London, working specifically with marine mammals, 
whales, dolphins and porpoises. Sound pollution is the one that I think underpins everything. It's pervasive. It's incredibly pervasive. It reaches parts of the ocean, as I say, that, 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 that us humans with our whaling fleets um, weren't present in. And it's not just whales species that, uh, that are under threat. It's, it's a huge um, number of the species that live in the oceans. Everyone has done a great job in, in raising awareness of things like plastics and, and, you know, floating debris that we know is out there in the oceans and, and the harm that that's causing. That's a visible pollution. Things like um, oil spills, that's a visible pollution. Sound pollution is, is largely invisible. And I think that's why to humans anyway, certainly not to cetaceans and to other marine organisms who can actually hear the sounds that, that we can't. But it's something that has really uh, come to the fore, I think, specifically because there is has been such an increase in things like uh, construction of offshore energy plants, wind turbines being anchored to the to the ocean floor, subsurface mining of the ocean floor, coastal developments, all kinds of um, projects that actually have an effect directly on the ocean. Sound travels a lot faster in water, particularly in the ocean's deep sound channel. Professor Christine Erb is a physicist specialising in underwater acoustics. She's also director of the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University in Perth. Sound doesn't propagate equally in all directions. So if you have a sound source, let's say a ship or so, it doesn't propagate in straight lines. Sound rays or the sound propagation paths, they bend underwater. And they bend as a function of the temperature and pressure underwater and salinity. And basically you can trap sound in the so-called deep sound channel. So if we have a sound source like a vessel that is sailing over the continental slope and the sound sort of leaves the vessel and it might kick off the sea floor and actually kick into this deep sound channel. And once the sound is trapped in that deep sound channel, it just keeps bending, sort of slightly fluctuating around the channel axis, but at very little acoustic loss. So you can transmit sound over vast ranges, hundreds to thousands of kilometers, if you get it trapped in that deep sound channel. Sound is one of the most important sensors for marine life. It's a fundamental tool for feeding, navigation and communication. Here's biologist and author David George Haskell. They hear it and they're immersed in it. This is the mind-blowing thing about sound in the ocean is for us, we hear most of our sound, of course, through our ears, a little bit through our fingertips. If we're musicians, you know, feeling vibrations in a violin or low frequency stuff in our chest. But if you're a fish or a whale or plankton, the sound is flowing into your body and, and sounding in every single organ and cell in a way that we can't really imagine because most sound bounce off, bounces off our skin. We're not quite literally swimming in sound the way these creatures are. So they do live in a, in a parallel sensory universe. Sound is everything. Uh, in terms of their bodily experience, rather than just being one sense the way it is for, for us. Whales and dolphins are doing what they can to adapt, calling louder or at different frequencies. Jasper Keynes is from Ocean Networks Canada. They research a variety of orca species that spend time in the Salish Sea in British Columbia. There's some adaptations that they can do. We know that for each decibel of noise up to a certain point, 
they increase the the uh, sound intensity of their calls. So it's functionally like, you know, you go to the bar and you shout at your friends so they can hear you. Uh, the whales could shout too. But of course, there's an upper limit to that. And the place where it gets really messy is that echolocation because they're listening for an echo. So while they might be able to shout to their friend, if there's a lot of different sounds happening and they can't hear that echo, they can't really sense their environment very well. Mm. So it sort of makes it like they're living in a fog because they just can't see very far anymore with all of that noise. The next time you see a boat cruising across the water, have a think about what it might sound like under the waves. Here are some orcas that were recorded in the Salish Sea. And here's what they sound like with boats in the water. Noise is kind of part of this uh, unfortunate triad of pollutions that all build on each other to cause problems for the whales. So each one in isolation would be okay, but the challenge they're facing is the lack of food, of course, nobody likes to starve, but on top of that, uh, there's quite high levels of persistent organic pollutants. So like PCBs, which we don't use anymore, but they're persistent, you know, that takes decades and decades for them to go away, flame retardants, all sorts of things build up in their systems. And they're all fat soluble. So as long as they're not starving, it's okay. But when they start drawing on their fat stores, it releases all of these toxins into their system that are quite toxic. And then on top of that, the noise makes it really, really hard to find food. So if the salmon ear is a little bit thin, but potentially good enough, but there's too much noise to see the salmon, they're starving. Mm -hmm. And now they have all of these toxins in their system. So the three of them together are really, really problematic, and even relieving one could make a big difference for the whales. The sounds from a large container ship or other vessels are a constant in the ocean, especially in busy ports and shipping lanes. But naval sonar and seismic surveys damage marine life in a different and more intense way. Seismic surveys are ways in which we use very loud sounds to map out where the oil is hidden underneath the seabed. And what a seismic survey does is it goes back and forth like a lawnmower going over over a big piece of grass, except the lawnmower is running for months back and forth over over hundreds of square miles of ocean, dragging behind it these meter-long things that look like missiles and what they do is they go off every 10 seconds. So these air guns release incredible amounts of sound by sending off explosions every 10 seconds. The sound waves penetrate all the way to the bottom of the deep sea sediments and bounce back up. And geologists use this to map where the oil is hidden down below. Unfortunately, what happens to any plankton that's within a kilometer gets instantly killed by the shock wave. Fish have their breeding and behavior disrupted. Whales tend to leave the area because these are enormously loud sounds Mm -hmm. in what is normally a relatively quiet ocean. So it's almost like volcanoes going off every, every 10 seconds. The sudden loud noises can cause some marine animals to make an emergency dive and the impact on their body can be extreme. Richard Sabin is from the National History Museum in London. 
the thing about deeper diving cetaceans, you know, um, animals that go down 50 metres or animals that go down 3,000 metres, like the deepest diving cetaceans, things like Cuvier's beaked whale that feed in the deep oceans, they have to prepare themselves. I mean, even an animal that only goes down a couple of hundred metres will 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 take deep breaths and sort of, as we do before we go swimming, you know, go diving, you take those deep breaths and you, you oxygenate your, um, your, your system. These animals prepare very, very carefully. There's a sort of a physiological preparation they go through before they go into these deep dives. And if you are one of those animals and you've balanced the amount of oxygen and nitrogen exchange in your system as you're going into this dive, which might be anything from, say, 20 minutes to almost an hour in some cases, if suddenly you're startled and, and you, you're, you're pushed into a sort of a flight response, then you're using up your stores of energy, you're using up your stores of oxygen. You may then not have enough to, to reach the surface effectively, or it might be that it places such a pressure on your system that um, obviously there's a stress response in several cases, I would say, over the past couple of decades. There have been conditions which have been identified in deep diving cetaceans that have been found washed up as either individual strandings or mass strandings that seem to suggest that because they've surfaced too quickly, they suffer from a condition which is very similar to sort of gas decompression sickness in human divers that, that surface too quickly. Whales and dolphins are able to leave an area if it gets too noisy. Smaller species don't have that option. Lots of the fish that breed inshore and the marine invertebrates that form the foundation of the, the food chain, they don't have the option of, of moving. And there are now hundreds of studies that have shown that when it's very noisy, their mating behaviours are disrupted, so they can't breed as successfully. A lot of fish also spend... A, good amount of time looking after their babies, either cleaning the eggs or staying with the fry and protecting them. And those parental behaviors are also disrupted. And when a predator comes, they don't really, they're desensitized to the predator, so they don't take appropriate defensive action. So in all these, this sort of the addition of all these little behavioral changes add up to a very tough life for many of these creatures. And it's enough in some cases to mean that life is no longer viable there. Mm. For other species, it means that their population's productivity is not as high. Noise pollution in the ocean can lead to a build-up of stress-related chemicals. It's been linked to growth suppression, lower fertility and a poor immune system. Richard Sabin was involved in research which explored how the earwax from a whale can reveal the level of stress it's been exposed to. We were looking at these waxy earplugs that actually form in the ear canals of large whales, blue whales, fin whales, humpback whales. And these plugs actually lay down material throughout the course of an animal's life. And actually by taking a look at the layers of that material, which roughly correlate to around about one uh, calendar year, you can, you can see what the animal was uh, sort of experiencing in its life in terms of its health in terms of its stress response. And we were looking specifically at stress responses. We managed to find earplugs from the Natural History Museum and from the Smithsonian in the USA to basically produce a timeline from 1870 through to about 2015. Wow. An overlapping series of earplugs in the same way can make the comparison with, with tree rings. You know, you take slices through trees from different points in time and you construct a time series. We did the same thing. It was a pilot study to see if we could see 
changes in those sort of background levels, the normal levels of um, cortisol, the stress hormone that you would expect to find. And, and through time, we saw those changes corresponding with things like the peak of commercial whaling mm-hmm. and a trailing off when you saw the moratorium, the end of commercial whaling. But actually, since the 1990s, those background stress levels have increased we could see from the amount of um, stress hormones present in those earplugs. And, and it's a generally held um, a theory now that what we call sub-lethal stressors, things that are happening to these animals in the oceans in the background that are causing constant stress, they're much greater now than they ever were back in the, the days of commercial whaling. And of course, if you're under constant stress and elevated levels of stress, it doesn't make you feel great. It can lead to ill health. It can cause problems with your immune response. Um, certainly with, with cetaceans, it can lead to problems with uh, pregnancies, either being able to, to get pregnant in the first place or to actually go full term. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Jennifer Leake. Awareness around noise pollution in the ocean is gathering pace, largely because it's become a lot easier to listen and record underwater. Earlier this year, for the first time, divers recorded the sound of a stingray. We're also getting a much richer understanding of the sounds that can be heard underwater. Have a listen to these snapping shrimp. Or this collection of fish calls. Even underwater plants make sounds. Here's Professor Christine Irv again. So plants underwater, when they do their photosynthesis, they emit bubbles. So you can actually record that. So seagrass plains will be bubbling um, during photosynthesis. So you can listen to the amount of photosynthesis happening and you can listen to the health of a seagrass plain. So I find that quite cool. I was working in a group that looked at the impact of noise pollution on fishes. And that was quite a new research area. Um, I think we had assumed that fishes lived a fairly silent world. Um, you know, in, in the UK, we have this phrase to be as mute as a fish. Um, and, and Jacques Cousteau famously called one of his big works, The Silent World. And, and we, we had this false um, understanding that that noise wasn't that important to fish. And, and then actually we, we've realised more and more in recent decades that fish are using sound in all sorts of ways as part of their lives to communicate with each other and also therefore are very negatively impacted by anthropogenic sound, by human noise pollution. Tim Lammett is a marine biologist at Lancaster University in the UK. In 2016, he went to Lizard Island in far north Queensland to study the impact of noise pollution on fish. But when he arrived, the focus of his research quickly changed. We found there'd just been one of these massive coral bleaching events. And what we discovered, actually, was that the natural soundscape of the whole reef had dramatically changed. So as well as this issue of noise pollution that we were used to studying, we were now seeing the natural soundscape of the whole reef ecosystem collapse. And that was because the bleaching and the damage caused to the reef by that had caused so much change and damage in the animal community that now all these shrimps and um, fishes and, and animals that usually would make noise that contributed to the reef soundscape had either died or left the reef and the whole ecosystem sounded different. It was about a quarter of the volume 
as it was before the bleaching and uh yeah that was it was quite shocking to us and 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 my research took a took a whole different turn at that point and and since then i've been trying to understand the impacts of ecosystem change on natural soundscapes and what that means for different animals on the reef one of the really important ways on a reef is that loads of the animals are using sound to choose where to live so lots of them start their life out in the deep blue sea floating around you know way out way out offshore but then as they sort of metamorphose into their adult stage they will come back to a reef uh, and they'll choose a reef to live on and they'll set up shop there and it turns out that um, one of the ways in which they navigate towards a reef is by listening out for the soundscape uh, and, and it's not just listening out for any soundscape it turns out they can tell from the sound of a reef whether it's healthy or degraded and whether they want to go towards that one or whether they want to, you know, keep on swimming down the coast and look for another reef. This is where Tim and his colleagues set up a pretty cool experiment. They wanted to test whether they could attract more fish by playing the sounds of a healthy reef. We had to create a little system for um, for, for playing sounds underwater for, to do these experiments. Uh, and we, we were sort of making, making that up a bit as we went along. So um, we used a, a lot of the... They have underwater loudspeakers that they use for synchronized swimming, you know, and um, and that helps the swimmers to hear the the music that they're dancing to. It helps them to hear that underwater. So we got those speakers, um, and then we needed a way to power them. Yeah. Uh, and so I I got um the sort of water barrels that you use if you go camping or if you go kayaking, you know, it's a sort of 10 litre water barrel. And in that I could put a motorcycle battery that would power the loudspeaker and then a, um, an MP3 player. uh, And then I rigged up a little circuit um, board. I actually didn't have circuit boards. So we we made it on a baked beans tin uh, and, and, and that circuit, you know, had a little battery pack that powered the mp3 player run through the motorcycle battery to power the loudspeaker and that whole thing floats above the reef and the underwater speaker goes down onto the reef we tie it onto a block on on the reef on the seabed and then that was our sort of system for testing this so then we could use the speaker to play various different sounds and and we made these identical patches of habitat wow which were like our sort of experimental units if you like and then on each one we could play different sounds so we could make the same habitat either sound completely silent or sound like it was a degraded reef or sound like it was a healthy reef nothing changes about the habitat itself Mm. um it's just what it sounds like and and that's how we tested um which of these habitat sounds are are most um attractive to different animals because you could play different sounds and count how many baby fish would would come and set up shop and settle on that habitat. In these experiments, they were only able to play the sounds for several days or weeks at a time. The longest they did was six weeks, but the results were pretty stark. In the habitat where they were playing the sounds of the healthy reef, twice the amount of fish turned up. It's encouraging, but Tim says it can only work in conjunction with other conservation efforts. Because if all you do is play the sound and bring the fish back, 
you've not actually done anything to make the habitat any better. <laughs> so, so that's clearly not going to work as a solution on its own. In mm. fact, it might even be damaging. You might be calling fish to a habitat where they shouldn't be. Yes. So so, so this we, we need to work out now, outside of a, a purely experimental context, how this works in a real world application. You know, whether you combine this with efforts to replant or regrow corals, um, whether you combine this with other habitat interventions that that make a good place for for fish to live, uh, and then and then at that point maybe you broadcast sounds as, a, as a, an advert, if you like, you know, to speed up yeah. the actual recolonization. It's so easy to record underwater that the new problem is finding capacity to analyse all the data. We'll actually be able to track and monitor the levels of noise pollution when it's most problematic, which sources it's coming from. You know, we're going to get to a position where we've got so many more ears in the water, mm. <laughs> if you like, than we've ever had before. Very quickly, as researchers, we're getting to the position where we're, rather than being limited by the amount of recordings that we have access to, which has been the status quo for some time, mm. we're now limited by our capacity to analyse them all. That's our next challenge. Yes. Um, now quickly getting to a position where we've got more information than we have the capacity to be able to do anything with it. Yeah. And and so we're starting to look towards next generation analysis tools as well, which is really exciting. Ah. So starting to work with artificial intelligence algorithms, um, sort of deep learning, that sort of thing to, to process some of these rather than doing all our analysis manually, which right. is what we used to do. We've had a recent project where we we fed thousands of hours of coral reef recordings into deep learning algorithms and discovered that th this artificial intelligence could learn how to tell just from a minute of recording where in the world that coral reef recording was taken and whether the reef was healthy or degraded. And it could do that faster and more accurately than a human could. There is reason to be optimistic about the problem of underwater noise. Compared to other forms of pollution like chemical spills or plastic, as soon as you switch off the source, the sound is gone and the impact is immediate. Here's biologist and author David George Haskell. Luckily, there are things we can do. There are ways of quieting ships mm. down. Half of the noise in the ocean comes from only 15% of the ships. So if you can focus on the noisiest ones that often are the oldest and the least efficient ones, you've solved the problem and it helps the shipping companies often because those ships in making all that noise is actually a sign of inefficiency. A quiet ship is actually traveling more efficiently. Now, the economics of that is already complicated because it, you've got an upfront cost of redoing the propeller design and the motors and all of that. That's a lot of money to, to invest. and so. I don't want to diminish for a moment the economic challenge of getting to quiet oceans. But I do want to underscore the problem that this isn't an inevitable consequence of having international trade. We can have quiet oceans and we have the technology. We just need to find a way to, to enact that, that, that allows people to stay in business, for the human economy to, to work, but also to work in a way that isn't creating a hellscape for other creatures. It's, it's amazing the power that, that some of these soundscapes can have. Um, yeah. pe people find them very, very emotional. The sounds of nature like that. It, it's like when you go out and you walk through a forest and, and you, you hear the birds singing or, or you, you know, at night you hear all the insects chirping and, you know, to, 
to hear the sounds of ocean life in the same way, and I, I think can be very beautiful and very moving. Timothy Lamott is a marine biologist at Lancaster University in the UK. Also in the program, David George Haskell is a writer and biologist. His latest book is Sounds Wild and Broken. Richard Sabin is principal curator at the National History Museum in London, working with marine mammals. Jasper Keynes is a staff scientist at Ocean Networks Canada. And Professor Christine Erb is director of the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University. Thanks also to sound engineer Dave White. I'm Jennifer Leake. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.